Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for attending the session. If you haven't heard me say it, um, for administrative housekeeping, if you would, please silence your mobile devices out of respect for those around you as well as our speaker. And if you haven't, please download the Pain Week app. We are always looking for feedback on this week's event as well as every individual session. So with that said, welcome to this afternoon's session. It is titled The Impact of Centralized Pain on Acute and Chronic Post-Surgical Pain. And our distinguished speaker today is Dr. Chad Brummett. He's Associate Professor and Director of Clinical Anesthesia Research, Director of Pain Research in the Department of Anesthesiology Division of Pain at the University of Michigan Medical School, although he's really a uh, Hoosier, so feel free to cheer for basketball here. But uh, I'll get off stage and and turn it over. Please help me welcome Dr. Brummett. Thanks, appreciate it. Good afternoon. Am I on? Good? Everybody hear me okay? So we gave away my biggest secret. I am a Hoosier. Uh, I've been in Ann Arbor for 15 years, so I cheer for Michigan for football and Indiana for basketball. I'm a, I'm a confused person. Uh, help me understand who's here today. How many primary care physicians do we have? Great. Um, anesthesiologists? Surgeons? Got small. Any um, internists that specialize? Uh, rheumatology in particular? Any rheumatologists? because we're going to use the F word today. We're going to talk about fibromyalgia, so we'll find out if there's any rheumatologists in there. Okay. Uh, mid-levels? A lot of mid-levels, great. I, uh, I, accept, I accept the criticism, and it can go into my evaluation. I appreciate it, and I won't, I won't make that mistake again. Thank you. Um, and then uh, friends from industry. I'm sorry? PM&R. Any PM&R? Okay. Industry? Great. So, uh, and what I miss? Of course. PT. It's a great group. This is everybody. So we're going to talk about pain today. And uh, I, I do have some disclosures. I, I'm funded. Uh, most of what I'll talk about today is NIAMS funded. I have a little bit of funding from NIDA. Uh, most of the other funding from the state and SAMHSA and CDC is related to the opioid work that I spoke about this morning. Uh, I have some institutional funding. I've received some research funding from Neuros Medical, not related to today. I have a patent that will never pay me a dollar in my life, but I'll disclose forever. Um, and I consult for two companies, and I won't talk about either product or really um, get, get at any point of any other product today. So those are my disclosures. Uh, the learning objectives, I don't normally do these, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read them off. Uh, identify the characteristics of patients with centralized pain. Review the central nervous system, pathophysiology, fibromyalgia, and other centralized pain disorders. Discuss the increased opioid consumption after surgery and think about potential mechanisms of why that happens. And describe long-term pain outcomes in people with centralized pain. We all want to measure. We all want to be able to hand patient a form, maybe a couple forms, have them fill it out and then put people into buckets. We'd like to be able to say, here's a line, and past this line on the right, you should get therapy X, or maybe you're not a good surgical candidate. On the left, you're going to go go just fine. And we've seen lots of research about this. In fact, when we talk about this, I would say that most people would immediately go to measures of affect, and in particular, negative affect. We'd talk about depression. We'd talk about anxiety, and these are important topics. And I'm going to frame today in the context of knee and hip replacement. 
surgeries for pain. I bet if Kurtz, who wrote this article, could get a nickel for every time this slide was shown, he'd be rich by now. But basically, this is the projection between 2005 and 2030 of the number of joint replacements. And this is all based on models of changes in number of knee and hip replacements, but also changes in age and changes in obesity. We do not have enough orthopedic surgeons or anesthesiologists or the many people that are needed to uh, take care of these patients afterwards to stay on this trend. We're already falling off, but the truth is is that the number of knee replacements is going up meaningfully. This is a common procedure for pain medicine, as is hip replacements. And I want to be clear, as a pain physician, I can poke fun at my own specialty. I'm an injectionologist. I do injections, right? And I do, I lead with my feet, and we could talk about that at some point. We could talk about how what I'm going to talk about today relates to the interventions, the minimally invasive spine interventions that we do. If in pain medicine, and when I'm talking about pain medicine, I mean interventional pain medicine, we had anything that was 50% as effective as knee and hip replacement, we'd be doing cartwheels down the street. So I'm going to beat up on orthopedic surgeons today because it's fun. But the truth is, is what they have is pretty good. And they actually help a lot of people. But what we know now, and this was first popularized by, by Vicki Wild in the UK, she looked three to four years after knee and hip replacement. And she, looked at, she used the WOMAC. The WOMAC is a validated self-report measure, the gold standard measure of knee and hip replacement or knee and hip pain, stiffness, and function. And just put people in the bucket. So this is not prospective. This does not change over time. This is just what's happening three or four years after arthroplasty. What she found was that about 32% of the knees and 17% of the hips continue to report what would be considered moderate or severe pain. I saw a wow. She said, wow, right? Surprising. Because the truth is, is that many people, for, for actually all of us, for many years, because knee and hip replacement is so overwhelmingly effective, we've sort of missed this. They looked at predictors, and not really predictors. They did a multi, multivariable ordinal regression model, which is just a fancy way of saying they took everything that they could know about that patient three to four years after surgery, so not what they were look, looked like preoperatively, and said, what was associated with being in one of those worst pain buckets? What, what made you more likely to be up a bucket? Right? What they found was that depression was associated, and that probably doesn't surprise many people in the room, with an adjusted odds ratio of about 1.3. But interestingly... When they looked at pain in one or two locations, we saw adjusted odds ratio of worse outcomes from about two to three and a half. Got worse when you got to three or four other pain locations. And when you got to more than five pain locations, other pain locations, your adjusted odds ratio of being in one of those worst pain categories specific to your knee or hip was an adjusted odds ratio of about 11.8 to 14.8. That's a big number. But again, not prospective and not really, no, not really assessing change over time. And so this is how I think about pain now. And this is not how I thought about pain as a fellow. Okay, I, I want to be clear. I was probably in the dark as a fellow, focused on how to drive the needle from A to B faster, more efficiently, how to be able to brag to my co-fellows about how good I was at doing procedures. And I missed this bigger picture. I didn't really think about pain like this, but this is how I think about pain right now. I would like to, when trying to triage that person coming in for knee or hip replacement, differentiate that person whose pain is more in the knee from the person whose pain is more in the brain. That's hard, right? Incredible advances in brain imaging, 
but by no means can I say you should send people off for brain imaging today to differentiate the person whose pain is in the knee from the person whose brain is in, in the brain. But what about this? What about this person? Every specialist in this room has a bugaboo diagnosis. For me, idiopathic low back pain. For the orthopedic surgeon, might be you know, knee pain of, of unspecific origin, right? The cardiologist will do catheterizations, million-dollar workups for non-cardiac chest pain. The ophthalmologists are vexed by these patients that come in with dry eyes. They get all kinds of procedures, shoving things in and out of their ducts, tears, expensive topicals, and, and nothing changes. Functional GI disorders, esophageal dysmotility, TMJD. And to be clear, all of these diagnoses are real diagnoses. So you may be sitting in the crowd with one of these diagnoses and saying, is this guy saying I don't have a real diagnosis? And the answer is no. But pause for a second. As a nurse practitioner in the clinic, think about that person that you see come into your clinic who's seen all of these specialists and been given each of these as an individual, discrete diagnosis. And you are probably ahead as a primary care provider in noticing that some of this overlaps, right? I, I think that as a pain specialist coming out of a top-tier pain fellowship, I was way behind in understanding how patients really felt when compared to primary care physicians. So now I use the F word. And if you don't like fibromyalgia as a word, let me give you a word you can like less, and that's fibromyalgia-ness. <laughs> and we're in a nomenclature crisis because the reality is this is a pretty good word. It's a pretty good word because what it does is starts to think about this as a spectrum of sensitivity. Starts to think about it as a continuous number and not a discrete diagnosis where A is yes and B is no. And this is the 2011 survey criteria for fibromyalgia in the way that we apply it at Michigan. Okay? So if you go to the first descriptions by Fred Wolf in Journal of Rheumatology in 2011, he used a body map, that, not a body map, a body checklist that was a, a group of body parts that are encapsulated in this body map. But this is how we do fibromyalgias. It's basically two pieces. One piece is this continuous score of symptom severity index. It's a 0 to 12 score that gets at some of these concepts of central pain mechanisms, right? Sleepiness, fatigue, trouble waking up refreshed. And then this concept of widespread pain. Now, the Michigan body map that we created, and we actually validated that in pain, and published it in pain, um, that actually includes more body areas because we wanted a more generalizable use. But this is intended to be the forest, right, to give you the big picture view. And so we pre-select the 19 body areas that Fred Wolf first described to get a 0 to 19 score so that you end up with a score that's 0 to 31. So our first hypothesis was that after accounting for all the variables that have been associated with opioid consumption afterwards, after surgery, that the fibromyalgia survey score itself would be independently associated with higher consumption of opiates. And so this is the measure, and this was our first um, histogram. We now have a lot more data, but this was the first histogram 
of the fibromyalgia survey score. And what you see is that about 6.7% of the knees and hips coming in for surgery met criteria for what would be called fibromyalgia positive. Right? That doesn't necessarily mean they haven't diagnosed a fibromyalgia, but they, they are on that side of what Fred Wolf described as being positive. I got to say, we didn't really want to, I'm not here to make cut points. I don't like cut points. And so we said, well, what if we just use the data to break this group into third? What do these people look like? What does this look like? And this is what we found. We, we broke patients into a low score, moderate score, and a high score. And what we found was that those in the, as you moved up from a low score to a high score, you were more likely to be taking opioids before surgery. And you were also more likely to be on higher doses of opioids. Moreover, when we talked about their preoperative phenotype, as you moved to the right on that curve, you saw more surgical site pain, more overall body pain, more depression, more anxiety, more catastrophizing, lower positive affect, lower physical function, everything you're looking for in your Monday morning patient all wrapped up in one. And so it seems kind of obvious that the folks on the right side of the curve would use more opiates, and that's what we found. We found that those folks in the high group used about two times as much opioid post-surgically when compared to the folks in the low group and stayed in the hospital about a day longer. Now, immediately she was saying, well, they're more likely to be on opioids. Opioids are the greatest driver of post-operative opioids. Preoperative opioid use is the, is the greatest predictor of post-operative opioid use, and that's a true statement. But we did a multivariable logistic regression model, which, I mean, multivariable linear regression model, which basically plots opioid consumption from zero to infinity, and we put all those covariates, all those factors you just looked at, we put them into a model including the fibromyalgia survey score. And this was the best model that comes out, and basically what you see is that age is consistent, younger age patients use more opioids, those using opioids preoperatively use more opioids, spinals decrease opioid use, knees use more opioids, and the longer you're in the hospital, the more opioid you get in the hospital. But this last piece, the fibromyalgia survey score, what that beta represents, that 7.9, is that for every one point patients moved up on the 31-point score, after adjusting for all those other factors, there was an associated 7.5 milligram oral morphine equivalent increase in their consumption in their roughly two-and-a-half-day stay. Now, we actually turned around, and I, I, I didn't put it in, but just to be clear, we actually also repeated the model without the preoperative opioid users. And we found that the opioid consumption was also high. The beta was pretty much the same. We then replicated this in women undergoing hysterectomy, a 23-hour stay. right? So 23-hour stay, once again, similar beta. After adjusting for all these factors, for every one point you move up on the fibromyalgia measure, you got about 7 milligrams more oral morphine. That's actually a pretty big number, much bigger. And what you see there, especially here, is that none of our measures of negative affect, catastrophizing, anxiety, or depression were independently associated with that consumption when we put five miles in the model. If we take five miles out of the model, it pops in and out. So what it suggests is that fibro, while not being specifically a measure of depression or anxiety, despite the many people who will say that's the case, Fibro subsumes the variance explained by negative affect and predicts about another 60 or 70% of that variance. So what does this mean? And this is a slide that sometimes I show earlier in the lecture. But when we think about the factors that we know are associated with fibromyalgia, 
when we compare fibromyalgia as the prototypical centralized pain condition to healthy controls, what we know is that patients with fibromyalgia have higher levels of the central nervous system neurotransmitters, the brain and spinal cord neurotransmitters, that facilitate pain. Substance P, glutamate, while lower levels of those that downregulate pain, the kinds that decrease pain, norepinephrine, serotonin. And, and with this paradoxical opioid finding. So actually, when you compare a patient with fibromyalgia or centralized pain to a healthy control, they have higher endogenous opiate levels. So that seems weird, right? So what does this mean? And this is a schematic from our, our neuroimaging guru, uh, Rick Harris, using some data from Jean-Carl Zubieta that he published in Science. And what this schematic represents is the, the Y there represents a mu opiate receptor in the brain. The green is an endogenous opiate, and the red is carfentanil, radio-labeled carfentanil. Now, nobody knew what carfentanil was, but when I started giving this talk a few years ago, now everybody knows what carfentanil is with people dying. But we actually, in our lab, in our pet center, make carfentanil. You make it from scratch because you can radio-label it and give it in really, really low doses, super low doses, and it'll go and it'll bind any available mu opiate receptor. So it's a way to go in and look at the number of mu opiate receptors that are available for binding. And so if we had a release of our endogenous opiates, we would go in, and the endogenous opiate system is very well suited to go in and bind the, endogenous opiate, the, the opioid receptors, and you would see a decrease in your binding potential. In other words, when you gave the carfentanil, you'd see less binding if you had this release. Now, you could make more receptors or have more receptors, and you would see an increase in your binding potential. And so it's important to think about the science here, and we'll go back and think about what we know about fibromyalgia. And these are, these, are, these are data from Rick Harris looking at three different areas of the brain, showing that the HCs here, the healthy controls on the left in each of these brain areas, compared to the FM on the right, the dark, that the fibromyalgia patients had lower mu opiate receptor binding availability. So again, what does this mean? Maybe it's that fibro patients have increased pain, they have an increased endogenous release of, of their own endogenous opioids, which leads to decreased binding potential. Or maybe it's that they just have fewer receptors. Because when we do PET scanning, when we give radio-labeled carfentanil, we're unable to tell how many receptors are there. We can only see the receptors that bind. So we have to sew together a couple of studies. We have to pull in this extra study they compared three different patient cohorts, healthy controls, fibromyalgia patients, or idiopathic low back pain, what I would call fibro in my clinic, right? And what you see is that the idiopathic low back pain and fibro patients actually have higher CSF levels of their endogenous opioids when compared to healthy controls. So despite having these higher levels, they also have higher pain, and this is probably why it's been long thought that patients, at least fibromyalgia patients for outpatient, don't respond to opioids. Even though we, wrote, we know right now about 50% of patients with fibromyalgia will be exposed at some point because they come in frequently for pain, and eventually we'll probably get an opioid. Hopefully that's changing. But the reality is, is that there's been this long understanding in the pain community that these patients probably don't respond, and yet maybe there's now a good mechanism for why. And so we are 
continuing this work because this was not actually the primary aim of our grant. The primary aim of our grant was really to look at the chronic pain outcomes after knee and hip replacement. We have a new grant where we're actually taking patients before knee and knee replacement. We do functional MRI along with evoked pain, so we actually experimentally induce pain both distally and at the knee. And then we have them come back on a separate day for a PET scan where we look at their myopia receptor binding availability. And then when they have their um, spinal as a part of their anesthetic, we take some CSF. And so this will be the first study that combines in the same patient fMRI, PET, and their endogenous opioids from, the C- from their CSF. So we think that this could help provide some additional mechanism. And we do have other work happening in hip replacement without the PET scanning because we think we could tell a lot just from fMRI. So when the NIH gave us the grant to talk about knee replacement, they are interested in acute pain. Actually, there's now incredible interest in acute pain and acute to chronic pain at the NIH. However, at the time that we got this grant, I think the NIH and NIAMS was probably more interested in why is it, as one of my orthopedic friends and colleagues tells me, that 10% of the people, it's actually probably about 30%, come back and they're very frustrated. He says they look at me like I'm the devil. The reality is about, as we saw, about probably 30% of the knees, 20 to 30% of the knees, and probably 10 to 15% of the hips fail to have replacement. And could this same concept of pain in the brain versus pain in the knee or hip explain some of that failure? And so we can kind of skip through a lot of this because the reality is we've already talked about it. We sort of know what we do preoperatively. We ask patients these questions before surgery. We follow them longitudinally after surgery. And just for a sense, these are the, these are the things that we assess. This is our light phenotyping. We give them a much more dense book if they come in for brain imaging, some demographics, some of the um, pain phenotyping, including measures of negative affect, past medical history, including BMI, ASA status, preoperative opioids, and whether they had a near hip and their primary anesthetic. And when we do a multivariable logistic regression model, so basically throwing all those factors in and looking at those factors that are associated with change in near hip pain using the WOMAC, the gold standard measure, we find these three factors as the best model. And it didn't matter if we used best model or put all the variables in. Basically, the fibromyalgia survey score was the only patient-level characteristic that was independently associated with poorer outcomes. And these are actually meaningful numbers. It means for every one point that you move up on that fibromyalgia measure, your pain benefit is 0.25 points less on that 20-point scale. So that's actually becoming a very clinically meaningful number. It's also there if we look at overall body pain, change in their overall body pain, because you see different ways to measure near hip replacement and its success. And if we look at patient global impression of change, another, another measure that's been um, encouraged by the, um, the different groups that look at the appropriate measures to look at outcome, the PGIC, it's also predictive of poorer PGIC outcomes. So what does this look like? Well, if I give you patient A, whose pain is primarily in the knee, patient B, and maybe a little too, maybe the picture's a little too rheumatologic, but basically has a few joints or a few places of pain. And this is patient C, and this is the, when I started using the F word, this is the person you thought about, right? You're immediately biased by that person that's on the right end of the curve. Well, let's just take him out of the picture, and let's compare these two patients that would be considered subthreshold. In other words, they don't meet criteria for being fibromyalgia positive as per the ACR, well, the 
2011 survey criteria for fibromyalgia. These are both sub-threshold patients. What happens to them? And this is what we find. When we compare patient B to patient A, both sub-threshold, and we adjust for all the different covariates that we measured, patient B will use a lot, about 80 milligrams more oral morphine during their inpatient stay and have an adjusted five times lower likelihood of expressing benefit from their knee or hip replacement. So, it's interesting. It's provocative. We've done, I think we've, I think we've beaten up anxiety and depression a lot you know, in terms of studying it and understanding it. And while I believe in measuring, and I work very closely with our pain psychologists, I think they're the most valuable people in our clinic. The reality is we have never acted on anxiety or depression. We have, we have except for the far right end of anxiety or depression, we haven't really done a whole lot to change care or selection based on those findings. Maybe this is actionable and maybe it's mechanistic, and maybe it's easier for patients to understand and think about pain in their brain versus pain in their joint. But we have a lot we don't know. Because what I need to tell you to be clear in terms of action points, we have some patients that are pretty high on that FM score that do well. They benefit. So why? Well, we think it's important to maybe think about these concepts differently. The measure is not a perfect measure. The measure was not developed to be used the way that we use it. We're using it in sort of an epi way, applying it to a general population whether or not they have a diagnosis. In fact, of those 6.7% of people who um, met criteria according to the ACR criteria, very few carried the diagnosis in their medical record. I think it was maybe two or three of them actually had the diagnosis. So, and we know that, especially when we talk about in a population like knee or hip replacement that tends to be elderly, that over life, you get aches and pains. I have chronic pain. I live with chronic daily pain. I have a couple of things I got to deal with. And I know that over life, I'm going to get a few more joints, right? But what's, what does this mean, right? So what is top down versus bottom up? Well, we think that some patients, when they receive this peripheral insult, sensitize their central nervous system. This is a major area of interest at the NIH, FDA. Everybody's interested in this. How do we predict that person that's going to go down the bad pathway and become a chronic post-surgical pain patient? But in that same way, maybe this is just slowly happening over time. Versus the patient that's more top-down. Right? Top-down patients tend to have stronger family histories. Their pain tends to have a younger age of onset. And there tends to be more associated negative affect and more behavioral factors associated, right? Maybe that's a way to tease this apart, but we really need to better understand these two populations. Moreover, this is not a great measure for assessing change. I showed you the Michigan body map. I told you that we look at the 19 body areas. But the truth is you could have a 50% improvement in your pain and have the same widespread pain index score. I'm giving you a yes-no variable. Interesting we know that actually... For those people that benefit, the number actually goes down, so some of the areas, other areas do benefit. But let's take the person who's get 50% better but still has pain in all the same joints. They technically, when measuring this, should have the same widespread pain index. So how do we need to improve this? Well, we just did another validation study where we made it so that you can, after you check a body area, we allow patients to fully fill out the body map 
so we're not punishing them for every body part they push. We've broken the body into eight zones. Rheumatologists have talked about four quadrant pain. I, I, I am unable to break myself into four pieces. I can't get four even pieces, so I don't know what to do with four quadrant pain. But we've broken it into eight. I don't know if that's any better, but we think it is. And we actually have done some cluster analyses of patients based on one and two body areas, three to five, and six to eight. And what you see is a stepwise progression in a more negative phenotype as you move up those, with the biggest jump being going from a little to a moderate amount. That's the biggest jump we see. But wouldn't it be great if we could actually have people not only assess their overall BPI, their overall zero to 10 pain score, but actually rate those different body areas without having them rate 35 body areas. And that's what we've actually finished our validation. And actually, we compared it to both the original Wolf criteria, the brief pain inventory, just the 0 to 10 score, and um, our original body map. And what we found is that people generally prefer the body map as a way to describe their pain. And while there, is, there are some people who don't want the additional questions, many of our patients, granted a pain population, like the ability to give us additional granularity. This is the prettiest negative slide I have in my slide deck anywhere. It's gorgeous. It's called a Manhattan plot. This is our first GWAS, genome-wide association study of the fibromyalgia survey score. I was certain and sad to find, I was certain we would find something and very sad when we didn't. Basically, we need um, any of these SNPs to hit a p-value of 10 to the minus eighth to be, to be significant. And we didn't find that. We didn't find anything close. What we did find, and I didn't show it here, was much stronger heritability of this measure in patients younger than 50. And that makes sense. If we think about those patients that come into our clinic that look more centralized, that might meet your measure of a fibromyalgia patient, a centralized patient, their pain tends to start younger. So that manifestation of widespread body pain and comorbid symptoms in a younger patient probably represents that top-down patient more so than somebody who's just sensitized from bottom-up insults. So we think that there is still opportunity to explore this. And uh, this is from our first 26,000 patients. We actually have 60,000 patients in our, in our biorepository. I, I run a team that does um, recruitment for an institutional biorepository. It's used for all diseases. But we have pain phenotypes on all these patients. And uh, we plan to go back and rerun this with our bigger phenotype looking at that younger population. I think it's important that we think more than just, we, we think about more than just pain. We think about pain as a 0 to 10 score. We think about some of the different um, measures that we use. But I, I actually believe that we really need to broaden our phenotype. And a place that we have not done well, we measure it, but we, don't, we have not really incorporated this, is childhood trauma. I work now, we have a postdoc, a social psychologist. She's a wonderful um, and her interest is in um, intimate partner violence, but now broadening out to childhood trauma. And what we see in our pain clinic is the patients coming in who have history of trauma are more likely to be using both benzos and opioids together, and it goes through the roof if you have childhood trauma. And so we certainly, I think many of you would say in the room that you've dealt with patients with trauma who look different, and this may be explaining some of our work. Importantly, more than just that 0 to 10 score, though, I think we also need to think about non-noxious stimuli. Our group had a really cool study published in pain. I was not part of this study. This is 
the broader we at Michigan. Um, when you go into a functional MRI scanner, one of the things that the technician will do is to, to try to probe the visual cortex to get a signal to make sure they're getting a good read from the MRI. And the way they do this is that we're a, at Ann Arbor, we're maize and blue. They have a maize and blue check that is actually lower lucency than, than the average light, maybe a little brighter than this, and it flashes back and forth. And just accidentally, when going back through data, they notice this signal. Fibromyalgia patients were through the roof in finding that unpleasant when compared to healthy control patients. Moreover, it was responsive to pregabalin. So patients using in, the, in, the, in a crossover trial who got pregabalin, their, their unpleasantness associated with this visual stimulus was less. I think that's pretty interesting. So auditory, visual, smell, all important things that I think we need to probe and incorporate. So what does this look like? How do we use this? What does this mean today? I've kind of given you some information. You've got a patient who comes in for a possible knee replacement. Maybe for me it's a spine intervention. Maybe they're coming in for a facet intervention. And I have a low fibro score. I'm going to say green light. Go ahead. It's usually green light, red light. But let's not forget about the yellow light. I'm not saying that these are actionable yet any more than anxiety or depression is actionable today. I'm simply saying that when you see that person with widespread pain and comorbid symptomatology that looks centralized, I think it's a pause moment. What can you do today before this intervention? Because if it was my mother and she was going to go in to have her knee replaced and I thought she had a pretty low chance of having success, I would certainly want to try other things, including behavioral treatments. I believe that we'll be able to get ourselves to a point, though, where we can take this possible group and do a more dense phenotype, maybe some imaging, and maybe some experimental pain testing as a part of clinical care to differentiate those patients that'll do well versus not. I don't believe this is pie in the sky. I believe we can do this in the future. I think it's also important that we really we, we remember that we focus on things like pain and fatigue, but this these, these pain and fatigue, and many of you know this, many of you deal, I think I heard from the psychologists, certainly the nurses hear this as well, increased distress, decreased activity, poor sleep, all of these things become a part of living with chronic pain, and it is, it is circular. We, we certainly see that these feedback and worsen pain and so I really believe that while we focus on pharma, you know, pharmacological therapies or interventions, we need to really also pay special attention to behavioral treatments as a part of an integrated care pathway. So I'll leave you with this. As a, just so if I was going to say, what is, your, what is your one take-home point? What is your one take-home slide? It's this. Then in a group of patients undergoing surgery for pain, that's an important caveat. They're undergoing surgery for pain. That, both of these patients, both subthreshold, Patient B will use an adjusted 80 milligrams more morphine just in that two-day stay, and they'll be five times less likely to respond to that knee or hip replacement. So where can we go? I think that phenotyping, I was bullish on genetics initially and experimental pain testing. Maybe that'll help us personalize analgesia, right? And even though I'm not overwhelmed yet with genetics, I do believe we have a lot yet to probe. If not genetics, maybe brain imaging or maybe both, right? 
maybe these are the factors that help us tease that patient apart and can be cost-effective if, we if we're not having to apply them broadly to everyone. Um, I get lots of help. Um, I am part of the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center with Dan Claw and his group. Many of you will know those folks. Um, I have a broad research team. And then we also um, do a lot of cool community service, and these are the people who do a lot of the hard work. This is from our last opioid drive. So with that, I will say thanks, and I appreciate all your, your attention. <clears throat> so do we use the preoperative, do we use the catastrophizing score preoperatively? And if so, what do we do with it? <clears throat> um, catastrophizing is challenging. Uh, I, I don't yet know what, exactly what to do with the measure. Uh, I believe that people who believe the world is about to end probably aren't optimized for surgery. Um, and it depends on how far you are to the right of the scale. What's interesting is, is that catastrophizing and depression overlap very meaningfully. If we look at the overlap between depression, anxiety, and catastrophizing, it's overwhelming. We, we, we assess these independently. Um, we have not found catastrophizing to be independently predictive of outcome in our acute or chronic pain studies. We've seen it pop in and out every now and then, but not a consistent factor in the models. So if you're asking, do I act on it clinically, the answer is no, not today. That said, there's a lot of smart people, very smart people who I respect, who are very bullish on catastrophizing. But I'll say again, much like depression and anxiety, we've been talking about it for a while, and I don't know what we've done with it yet. Other questions? It's hard to see because I got some people standing up. So if you do have a question, please sing out. Awesome. Uh, good luck. Uh, go. Oh, I'm sorry. You have a question. So does taking endogenous opioids downregulate the endogenous system? Taking exogenous opioids, in other words, taking oral opioids, does that? Sure, I mean, you know, exogenous opioids will change the opioid system. Um, we have some data. I didn't put it up here because it's a lot to chew. It's secondary data. It is provocative but not maybe definitive. Where we overlaid, um, and this is the royal we again. This is not me. I was not part of this paper. Uh, fMRI and PET scanning, and what we found is, is that there was an overlap between mu opioid receptor binding availability and areas of the brain that sort of lit up in, in fMRI that responded to pain. So effectively what we're showing, I think, is what could be considered um, endogenous opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and maybe a little bit of the reason why we've seen some studies to suggest naloxone, uh, low-dose naltrexone may be efficacious. Uh, Jared Younger and Sean Mackey have done some cool work there. It's provocative. You know, they're certainly more, I think, bullish on microglia as a mechanism. I really think this may be a receptor mechanism and that the endogenous system may be malfunctioning in patients with opioids. But, yeah, to the general population, if you, if you take an endogenous opioid, does it change your mu receptor binding availability and your mu receptors? Absolutely. There's a central downregulation. If that, does that answer your question? Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your attention.